everyone. Welcome to Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. This is the second episode dedicated to listener questions. That is your questions. I've received very many questions from you, and I've organized them into thematically related batches. And today's episode focuses on the questions that I received from you about identity, Byzantine identity. And most of the questions were about what we might call ethnic identity, which sometimes does and sometimes doesn't overlap with modern national identities. As this episode is longer than average, I will keep the preliminary remarks to a minimum. The concept of identity is one of the top analytical tools that modern scholars use in order to make sense of the past, but its study has gone through a number of phases that today still kind of overlap. So in any given field, you may find older and newer and more progressive or even future-pointing conceptions of identity, all overlapping and jumbled together sometimes, and there's often a lot of talking at cross-purposes. And so to help me make sense of this situation, I have invited Brian Swain of Kennesaw State University to present a kind of counterpoint And I mean it in the following way. Discussion of ethnicity and ethnic identities in the field of Byzantium is quite restricted, except in the early period when there is a lot of discussion about the identity of barbarian groups, Goths and others. And it seems that all of the discussion of ethnic identities has focused on those groups, which have, because of their centrality to the way in which European history has been constructed and imagined, become fundamental for the way in which ethnicity generally is discussed, uh, especially in the broader context of European history. And this is in counterpoint to Byzantium, where ethnicity has been downplayed in traditional scholarly accounts. And so I thought that Brian and I would have a kind of counterpoint discussion where we would first outline the phases of the discussion of identity in, in Europe in 19th and 20th centuries and down to today, And then we would turn to some of the more specific questions that you all sent in. I thought that the broader framework was necessary in order to set the stage, but that broader framework also addresses some of the questions that I received from you, especially about what do we mean by identity and how is it discussed differently by different schools of thought and what's at stake and so on. I I think that um, the sequence of the conversation should be clear as, as you followed along. I had a lot of fun uh, putting this together, and and my great thanks to Brian for patiently putting up with all the multiple <laughs> revisions of the structure of this conversation as I, I was trying to put it into some kind of shape over the weeks. In fact, months by now. I beg your indulgence on one thing. Many of the questions that you sent in would require an entire book <laughs> or more, usually more, in order to answer fully. What I can give you here is just a shadow of a trace of an answer. And in retrospect, listening to the conversation again, I found myself wishing again and again that I had uh, said this here and said that there and clarified and added and so on. These are complex and sometimes delicate topics. Nevertheless, I believe that the broad outline of an answer can be provided or else I wouldn't have included the question in the list. So keep in mind, for all of these, there's always a lot more to say. So here's my conversation with Brian Swain. 
And also my thanks to Medievalist.net for hosting this podcast on their website. Hey, Brian, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, man? How, how am I doing? It's 2020. <laughs> we're, li- we're living in history, though. So, so, so years ago, I was hoping that 2020, which is clearly the coolest sounding year in a long time, uh, was going to be memorable and futuristic. And if this isn't cyberpunk and dystopian, I'm, I don't know what is. So I guess I got my wish. I remember a few years ago in emails to my colleagues, we're planning events ahead of time, right? Like, you know, in the universities, you plan like two or three years ahead sometimes. And we were, we were beginning to plan for the year 2020, and it seemed science fiction-y to me. Like, <laughs> like, we're already past the point where all the sci-fi stuff I read in the 80s was supposed to have been set. Yeah, right. Yeah. And anyway, on a scale from like Battle of Adrianople to Fall of Constantinople, where would you rate 2020? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so, Brian, let's turn to the questions that we have before us here. And... As I mentioned, we had a large number of questions about identity and Byzantine identity and why scholars talk about Byzantine identity. And they were very good questions. But I thought that before we turn to those specific questions, we needed to have a framework uh, to explain to the uh, audience, especially if they're not experts or if they're scholars, they don't work on identity, what it is that scholars mean by that and how it is that we've come to talk about identity in the terms that we do now. And just to clarify, for the purposes of this discussion, because this is what the, these are the questions that I got, we're talking about ethnic identities largely. So we're not talking about personal, gender, professional, even religious or any kind of other identities, but mostly what we understand by ethnicity and much, much less so what I'll say in countries like the United States and the UK is understood by race. That doesn't come up so often in the context of a a medieval civilization. It's pretty rare. There's very little scholarship on that. Um, So we're just going to talk about ethnicity and the way in which um, scholars talk about it. And, and then after we've set the framework, we'll talk about some of the, um, we'll address some of the specific questions. Brian and I have decided to structure this conversation by talking about three phases. So three historical phases, um, which represent different ways that scholars have talked about ethnic groups in the past uh, almost two centuries. So we're just gonna walk you through those and explain how we've gotten to where we are. Uh, So Brian, you wanna start us off uh, with phase one and and one more word of explanation. So we decided to make this a kind of counterpoint so Brian is going to be talking about a group that he's worked on a lot, which are the Goths and their reception in modern scholarship. And then I will be joining with a counterpoint about the Byzantines slash Greeks slash Romans, how scholars have talked about them in the same corresponding phases. So it'll be a kind of dialectical tandem conversation. So Brian, why don't you start us off? Sure. So it might help just to to define these three categories first, and then we'll go back and treat them in turn. So these are the essentialist approaches, the constructivist approach, and the deconstructivist approach. Uh, The oldest of these is the essentialist approach. The the root word there is essence. So there is believed that individuals in a given group shared certain intrinsic qualities determined by bloodline, and that grouphood was rooted in that kind of shared essence. 
starting in about the mid 20th century after World War II, the constructivist approach emerges called constructivist because it was believed that social bonds were seen to be socially constructed, not a matter of blood. It's also in that period that the term ethnicity comes to take over the old, the old terminology of race. And then about 40 years ago, I'd say maybe late 70s, early 80s, a new analytical mode emerges that we're going to call deconstructivist. And that mode tends to minimize the depth and durability of ethnicity and kind of downplays the role that ethnicity plays in shaping history. So those are the big three. The essentialist approach. In the 19th century, the study of human groups, what we're calling ethnic groups, was the study of race. It's not quite what we think of as race today, though it is sort of eerily similar in that they had the three broad categories that we still implicitly assume now, the you know, black, white, and generally Asian. They had that. But then it gets more complicated because the world was seen to be populated by sub-races and then sub-races of those sub-races. So, Anthony, let's, let's assume you're just a garden variety Nazi bastard. You would idealize someone of Caucasian race, Aryan sub-race, and then further Nordic sub-race. Other Caucasian sub-races included things like Celtic, Slavic, Baltic, Iranid, even an Alpine race believed to have come from Central Asia and then uh, inhabited areas like Switzerland and, and, and Italy because Hitler admired Mussolini for being a prime example of the Alpine race. Alpine race, okay. Which, of course, every school child knows uh, that Alpines are of moderate height and high cephalic index. So, <laughs> which means they had broad heads. Anyway. Wait, but, is there going to be a test on this after? <laughs> don't forget your phrenology. That might be so, I get a page of uh, just skull images and I have to identify the... <laughs> a lot of strange uh, listener questions from this one. Anyway. But beyond like physiognomy, like bone structure or, or skin color, racial characteristics in this model were seen to encompass character traits like truthfulness, competitiveness, individualism, to what degree someone was entrepreneurial even. All that's to say that race was deterministic. Like it would determine one's very character. And you know, provided there wasn't too much, quote, racial mixing, uh, these character traits could be passed on generation after generation, potentially eternally. Ancestral race sort of determined all of this stuff. Anyway, as this regards the barbarians, um, as scholars were, were really first beginning their systematic study of, say, philology and, and ancient history in the early 19th century, all this stuff got, ended up coalescing with racial theorizing. And so groups like the Goths and the Vandals and so forth were slotted into this racial framework for understanding like, historical processes and, and group formation. And once they were, what modern Germans did was ostensibly establish unbroken lines of cultural and racial continuity between themselves and the barbarians. And not to put too fine a point on it, but that meant that Germans believed that ancient barbarians were exactly the same as themselves. So same ancestry, same personality, same culture, e eternally recurring throughout time. And that kind of outlook had political consequences, because if, if it was believed that cultural character was a product of nature, then, then, well, political organization must be too. And so the natural, quote, natural form of political community was believed to be the nation state, you know, which was idealized as being monocultural, monoracial, monolinguistic, and all of that, which, of course, was never realized. And then anyway, fast forward to the Nazis. They, they, they took these ideas so seriously and, and, and incorporated the study of ancient history into their ideology such that 
They would crack open copies of Caesar's account of the Gallic War or, or Tacitus's Germania, and they pointed to, quote, Germans inhabiting huge swaths of Western, Central, and Eastern Europe, and they used that to justify their, their war of, quote, unquote, reconquest, right? taking back what was theirs by ancestral right. So, so that sort of gets into the, 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 the barbarian essentialist approach, what was, what was going on on the Byzantine end of things in, in the 19th century. What I wanted to point out is that in that model that you just outlined, there's no real room for the discussion of identity. Ah, right. Right? In the sense that it's not necessary because cultural, personal, moral, religious traits, they're all just encoded in the, in the blood, in the biology. And so you have those traits regardless of whether, you know, you, you, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you don't have a choice in that. And, and so it's not a matter of self-fashioning. It's not a matter of culture emerging at the intersection of two groups um, interacting, right? It's, it just is. So these groups are sort of natural species. They occur in nature. And this was the model that was used to construct many of the na nations and nation states in the 19th century, right? Sure. So, yeah, so each nation has its characteristics and its its homeland and, you know, its traditions and its ancestry. And so the nation states were built around those ideologies. So the funny thing about Byzantium is that, so while this ideology remains dominant in European thinking, it's difficult to apply to Byzantium at this time. So what are the races? Um, up until the mid 19th century, Byzantium was understood as being the empire of the Greeks. It's a medieval Greek empire. And all the whole, the whole racial thinking about the Greeks was applied to it. Now, of course, the traits that are associated with the Greeks weren't always positive. Like down to the early 19th century, they were mostly negative. The Greeks were shifty, sort of faithless, clever, but too clever, right? So very sophisticated, but to their own detriment. They produced all these heresies. They, you know, they, had, they once had ancient philosophy, but in medieval times, they declined and turned it into superstitious theology, you know, and all of this. And, and sexually, they were interesting, <laughs> right? right? So the, they didn't conform to the sort of masculine warrior norms of Western Europe and, and all that. And so the construction of a Greek race in European historical writing wasn't flattering. Okay, but then what happened in the 19th century is the Greek Revolution. And the Greek Revolution to 1821 to 1830, this, this shifted attention back to the ancient Greeks. So the modern Greeks are the descendants of the ancient Greeks, and they're seeking liberation from the Ottoman Empire. So the idea of the Greeks became very positive. Uh, you have Philhellenism and all of this. The problem is that now the concept of the empire of the Greeks became problematic because the, the Western powers were very reluctant to allow independence movements from all of their empires. They were very, very grudging in supporting the Greek revolution. They did, but they didn't like it. And it was considered exceptional because these are the ancient Greeks and you know, that's okay. But we didn't want to uh, allow the sort of concept of the empire of the Greeks to be circulating very much. This became a problem, especially in the Crimean War. I don't want to get into all of the details, but the concept of the empire of the Greeks became very toxic in Western historiography. And in the late 19th century, you can see it being replaced by the concept Byzantium. And the problem with the concept Byzantium 
is that it was non-ethnically specific. This isn't a race. The Byzantines are not a race in the whole, in the taxonomy of skulls right? <laughs> that the Europeans are producing that, you know, it's very forward thinking of them. Yeah. It, you have a, you have, a, you know, you, I guess you can have a Greek, you know, you have a Greek statue. When, when the Greeks enter these tables, it's always like some statue by <laughs> Praxiteles. No, right, right, right. And you, 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 I've even seen these progression of skulls, you know, from like the, I don't know, whatever, Neanderthal to African to Armenian to, and then there's a Greek statue at the end. Like some hot naked dude. Yeah. That's the, yeah. While other groups that were in or around the empire were considered races, Arab, Armenian, Jew, Bulgarian, whatever, the majority of the population was kind of deracinated, just called Byzantines, because they, you, you didn't want to call them Greeks for political reasons. You didn't, in other words, you didn't want to legitimate the existence of an empire of the Greeks that included Asia Minor and Constantinople at a time when the Eastern question was still very much burning. You know, the Byzantines just became a, quote, mix. <laughs> right? So the world is populated by races that are distinct and identifiable. But the Byzantines themselves were this kind of mix. And I should add here that there's some very interesting discussions about this in Nazi legal theory, uh, which I was surprised to find. I didn't think that the Nazis uh, the, and the legal theorists would have gotten into Byzantium, but, but they did. And, and here's roughly the, the shape of it. The ancient Romans, according to Nazi legal theory, were Nordic types like pure Nordic types and so forth. And so what they produced, especially like ancient Roman law, that's generally good. But over time, the, the Romans kept mixing with all of these other people. And this mixture, this, this, this which fr from the Nazi standpoint is an abomination, right? All of this, this racial mixture, they labeled Byzantium. Uh, and so the Byzantines represent for them the end result of a big Roman mistake, which was to extend citizenship, the same legal citizenship to all of the peoples of the empire, allowing them to mix. And what you get in Byzantium is just a, a, a racial monstrosity. And they labeled as Byzantine the, the racially mixed state that results from a too liberal grant of citizenship rights. And wow. yeah, and this was done in the context of trying to restrict first-class citizenship in the Reich, right? And to whom do we give it? And, you know, they were over time excluding groups from it, and, you know, Jews, Slavs, and so forth. Yeah, um, they, they, turned, they turned the empire into a caution, the Roman empire into a cautionary tale then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, the, and Byzantium was like the warning case, right? So we don't want to do that. And so what that meant is that Byzantium continues into the 20th century not being talked about in very explicit or specific racial or ethnic terms. It's, there are groups that can be identified, but the core population is just considered a racial mix because it doesn't correspond to the taxonomy. Right? We'll, we'll come back to this uh, in a moment. So why don't you lead us into phase two? World War II changed, changed everything. Uh, and not just in this bizarre little corner of Byzantine and barbarian identity stuff we're doing today. I mean, it changed everything. At least as it concerns us, it became obvious to, to the world in the middle of the 20th century that racialist thinking wasn't just like this ivory tower concern. It could and, and did start wars, lead to genocide. And so the study of human social bonds, like it, it had real and important consequences. 
And the view of the world as this constellation of deterministic races and sub-races was, was abandoned, at least yeah, it, by can I add, yeah. Not just because it was dangerous, but also because it was wrong. <laughs> it's made up science. So race, the term race wasn't totally abandoned, as we still have it today, but it, it was curtailed severely. And in its place, uh, this new, this rough neologism, uh, ethnicity, started being used. Uh, anyway, so this is when the, the constructivist model, the second of our models today emerges. And it, it posits that the bonds that unite a people are not in the blood. They're not inherent. Rather, they're, they're formed in people's social interactions and in the meaning with which they imbue those interactions. So peoplehood or ethnic identity is made it's constructed, it's, it's, and it's continually remade and reconstructed by the stakeholders in a given group. It's a sense, so it's, it's located in the mind. That, that doesn't mean it's flimsy, it's real, it has consequences, it shapes history, but it is an idea. Let's also get down some general ideas about what ethnic identity is specifically, as opposed to other kinds of identities. So what do they consist of? You can say that an ethnic group is comprised from an array of potential constitutive parts. Uh, so not all groups have to have all of these. So it's not like a precise checklist we're dealing with here. This is not a matter of like bureaucratic law or like Newtonian physics. The potential constellation of parts consists of uh, a group name, a recognized group name, which is called an ethnonym, a, often a belief in a common descent, collective memories, real or imagined, shared customs, laws, language, religion, and association with the territory. A sense of solidarity, I think, is important. And that gets to our question of the, the evanescence or, or not of, of groups. And lastly, both an internal and external perception of difference from other groups. And so when you get all of these things together, a people will emerge. In other words, a people is an ethnic group. Herodotus said that the Greeks were Greek because of their common bloodlines, language, religion, and customs. And a thousand years after that, uh, early Byzantine historian Agathias is uh, talking about the Frankish people. And he says the Franks are defined by their territory, custom, laws, religion, dress, and a sense of justice. This shows us that ethnicity has been thought of in very similar ways for a very, very long time. And, and we still think of them in the same terms. And in many ways, I think this ancient and current understanding of ethnicity is far superior to the racial thinking that mm. dominated in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I think that was an extremely limiting and even dis and distorting to, to a great degree um, the, the identities of people that people actually had. Um, Greek ethnography here is, I think, much better. Now, regarding barbarian studies, clearly these had certainly been implicated in the old racialist and nationalist models. And so it, it clearly had to undergo considerable revision, and it did. Uh, and so barbarian groups like the Goths and so forth were no longer seen as these closed and homogenous kin groups. Scholars revisited the sources and noticed marked discontinuities in their histories and noticed that they, in fact, were clearly not homogenous. So, for, for example, if you're reading like any given ancient author, author X will generally refer to the Goths and only the Goths throughout the narrative, but sometimes you get these little quick notices in which they tell you that actually that Gothic group that they've been talking about for a while actually had Huns and Rugians and even some Romans in it sometimes. And so the composition 
of a Gothic group could be complex, so clearly heterogeneous. And yet, they're still called Goths in the sources. And scholars in this post-war analytical mode found that to be meaningful. And they argued that there must have been some kind of central Gothic identity, sort of like, like a star in a solar system, around which other subgroups could gravitate. And in the case of the Goths, scholars noticed that one source in particular, the sixth century source, Byzantine source, Jordanes, he gave a long genealogy of the family of Theodoric the Great, the, the king of Gothic Italy in the sixth century. And then from that genealogy, it was argued that Goths and other barbarian groups, they rooted their sense of ethnic consciousness in the stories and traditions promulgated by elite clans or by royal dynasties. And so that, that core of traditions is called in, in the scholarship in German a Traditionskern. And it was, that Traditionskern was understood to be subject to change over time, you know, with, with new leadership coming in and changing political circumstances and so forth. But it was also believed to remain consistent enough to provide an ethnic group with a sense of continuity and durability uh, over time. How did this affect the postulated connection between Goths and modern Germans? In the scholarship I've read in the, in the 1960s and 70s German, uh, this wasn't taken to task explicitly, but it, it, was, it, was, it was abandoned. That, that, that just wasn't spoken about anymore. These were seen to be distinct historic groups like, like, like any other past, like the, like the Sumerians or the Akkadians or whatever, just, just a, a group in the past. Right, it breaks it. I, I, so the history of the Gothic groups is uh, treated sort of individually and these groups form and reform and then they, they unform. Uh, the Goths in Italy are defeated by Justinian and presumably disperse. They melt into the local population or are stationed elsewhere by Justinian. Um, so why don't you tell us about the term ethnogenesis? Uh, because I think, doesn't that come into play in this phase too? Oh, that, that was, I mean, I was, I was trying to spare your readers from yet another term for the, for the upcoming test. But it's important. Uh, <laughs> sure. So, so, so that, the, the idea I laid out previously, so ethnogenesis is a fancy term for the coming into being of an ethnic group. That process is what I laid out. So, so when groups gravitate toward some other group, say the Goths, and begin to associate themselves with Gothicness for their own advantage, for their own sense of belonging, so forth, what, what they're gravitating to, according to this model, are the stories being promulgated by, by these certain royal clans or, or royal families. And that's subject to change over time. Uh, and so that is, so this process of ethnogenesis is, doesn't just happen once, it happens sort of continually over time as the bounds and stories of that ethnic group shift to, to fill up whatever historical container they're in at the given moment. Yeah. And I should add that this isn't, though this term has become very prominent in the study of the barbarians in late antiquity, it, it applies very broadly. So one can even talk about the process of Hellenization in antiquity, so in classical antiquity, when like you take the people of Asia Minor and over the centuries after the conquest of Alexander and continuing under the Roman Empire, they acquire the Greek language and Greek culture and they kind of become Greek. And we call this Hellenization, but in a certain sense, insofar as they might have regarded themselves as ethnically Greek later on, for example, through the mythical connections to ancient Greek 
um, heroes that establish, you know, kind of genealogy of, yeah, we're also Greek. This is also a, a form of ethnogenesis. Uh, but, you know, we don't have the opposite term, do we? I mean, ethnocide sounds... <laughs> Ethno-entropy? It sounds wrong. Ethnocide sounds wrong because remember when an ethnic group sort of disappears from the historical record, it's not because all of its members were killed off. It's right. because for historical reasons, they got, they were attracted to other, you know, group formations and, you know, acquired different identities. But we don't have a good wor word for that, the kind of dissolution of an ethnos. And it would, it would really help too, because I, I explain this to, to my students and to people regularly that I think they sort of implicitly just assume that ethnic, entire peoples just die. Yeah. And they're just replaced entirely by an invading people. And it's, right. It's not, it's not the yeah. case. No, ethnogenesis has also been applied to, you know, um, Arabization and under the caliphate and so forth. Yeah. But no, we do need an, uh, the opposite term because as we'll talk about, ethnic groups both come into existence and go out of existence. And, you know, I kind of suspect that we don't have one because of the sort of ex the extremely upbeat turn that the study of late antiquity took, like everything is rising and yes. it's the rise of this and the rise of that and ethnogenesis and everything is being born. It's very creative and you know, it's great stuff, but we don't want to talk about fall and decline and ethno disappearance or whatever, but yeah. you know, they're, they're complementary processes. I mean, you normally don't get one without the other, but even in Byzantine history, we have like Justinian conquers the Goths in Italy, he conquers the Vandals in North Africa. They didn't kill all of them. I mean, they, they just get broken up and absorbed into whatever came right. next. And I think it's, it's, it's important to point out, it's the trauma of invasion that can be the force that disrupts all of those social bonds that used to cohere these people to a, a central identity. The fallout of a, of, a, of a particularly damaging war can remove all of the sense of meaning or community or economic vantage that being part of that group used to uh, provide. But then whatever the prevailing force in whatever place we're talking about is, that can start to provide the sense of meaning, belonging, advantage, and then new identities emerge in that context. And so, yeah. uh, so it's not as if the Goths stopped having children or were all killed by the Moors in Spain. It's yeah, that, those kinds of groups are especially vulnerable if their group identity is tied to being a, an army in charge of a place. And this was the case with the Goths and the Vandals to a large degree. They had conquered those provinces and they were its sort of ruling military element. Once that army is defeated and dispersed, that's like the core institution that holds them together. And it's difficult for them to survive. Anyway, so to give the Byzantine counterpoint to the development of the study of ethnicity after the war, this wasn't just a mass revulsion at the, the kinds of actions to which racial ideology could lead, though it was that. It was also an intellectual turn in realizing that all of this race study was bogus. <laughs> and the, the United Nations actually sponsored a series of conversations and kind of white papers and, and so forth that were signed by hundreds and hundreds of historians and social scientists and anthropologists. It's called the race concept or something like that. They just debunked it, like this is not how it works. And, and it was out of those conversations that the study of ethnicity, again, as a historically constructed thing, that it, and, and that cultural traits and moral, intellectual, and, and so forth qualities of human beings are not inherited in the way in which race theory had imagined. 
So Byzantine studies, <laughs> Byzantine studies sat this out. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had a rough 19th century. They're sitting the 20th century. Out. Completely sat this out. So my field remained exactly where it had been in the late 19th century until now. And so basically the concept of ethnicity was not picked up. Um, that is as studying the historical co construction of ethnic identities. It's not picked up at all. Until the 21st century, you will not find books or articles with ethnicity and Byzantium in their titles. Like, um, and when you do find them, I mean, there, there are a few, but not many. Uh, when you do find them or when you find discussions of like ethnic groups, which remember are kind of necessary if you're calling the empire multi-ethnic, which is standard, right? It's standard to call Byzantium a multi-ethnic empire. It always has been. Well, presumably you would have to then explain or list or be able to identify what the ethnic groups in it were. The field has never done that. So instead what we do is we, we just simply go by national standards. So if you're an currently existing nation or ethnic group or whatever, and you claim some of your members in Byzantium, you look back and you say, that part's mine. <laughs> you kind of, you're assigned it. <laughs> Right. So you, so we have individual and separate discussions of like Armenians and Byzantium, Slavs, Jews. All right. Modern, let's say, nations or ideologies continue to claim their share, their their slice of the pie. But nothing really changes when it comes to the majority of the population. They continue to be referred to as Byzantines. There's extreme reluctance to talk about what that actually means. So in, in other words, if you're willing to talk about certain groups as ethnic groups that are maybe sort of minorities in the empire that the, that the Byzantines maybe look down on, like, you know, they write some nasty things about Armenians and they write some, you know, some nasty things about the Jews and so forth. But then there's some sort of boundary there between us and them, but you only look on the other side of the boundary. You, you never look inside. And the reason of course for that is that it is forbidden to talk about the Byzantines as Romans, which is what they call themselves. That's just blocked off. That's been blocked off in the West since the 8th century, late 8th century, 9th century. Like, you don't go there. Uh, and because this is what the Byzantines call themselves, all of the markers of ethnicity that we would easily identify as markers of ethnicity in any other group, they associate with being Roman. We'll talk about some of those. But because we can't talk about them as being Roman, we don't have the, the link to hold all of that together in discussing the construction of that kind of ethnic identity. So that's off the table. The alternative would be to call them Greeks. Western historians continue to be very uneasy about calling the Byzantines Greeks, uh, stemming from the 19th century regions that I mentioned. For one thing, that would be conceding the field of Byzantine studies to modern Greek national discourse and saying like, yeah, okay, you guys get that. Because in modern Greece, that idea was continued, right? That the old standard Western idea that, Byzanti that the Byzantines were Greeks, that's continued in the mo modern national discourse by, by some prominent modern Greek historians. Not everybody in Greece believes this, but it, it, it was kind of enshrined that yeah, this is the medieval Greek empire somehow. <laughs> like there's a, lot, there's a lot of nervousness about this. And okay, that's a separate topic. But it made Western historians uh, or just non-Greek historians very uncomfortable with saying, yeah, this is kind of a part of Greek history. Because it certainly doesn't present itself that way. It presents itself as part of Roman history. 
uh, but nobody wanted to talk about that. So the effect of all of those, those that blockage is that Byzantine studies pretty much continues as before and does not engage with the historical construction of ethnicity within the context of Byzantine history. It can be talked about with regard to barbarians or minority groups, and there you go. And let me just say that this, of course, produces problems because one problem is that you're constantly at war with your sources. You have to constantly say that, no, what the sources say is wrong. These Byzantines are either deluding themselves that they're Romans or they're trying to deceive people because they're not really that, but you're not willing to say what they were. It also creates some blind spots. So the term Byzantine doesn't really mean anything. And so how do you fill in the content? During the 20th century, the, the lead concept that was used to fill in the gap was orthodoxy. Maybe ethnicity didn't matter to them, which is against all of the evidence. But what mattered to them was orthodoxy, and this is their identity. Fine, and because to a great degree it was. I mean, that, that, that'll work. But then you run into some problems when, for example, orthodoxy does not become really a bridge of goodwill <laughs> between, say, the Byzantines and Bulgarians or the Serbs or the, the Rus or any, any, anyone else. <laughs> right? It just doesn't affect how they look at other people who are orthodox like themselves. They continue to look down on them. So there you have to resort to some, some kind of ethnic label. And so in Abolensky, for example, the Byzantine Commonwealth, who saw everything in terms of this orthodox grid, but he, there are these there's great passages in the book where he's wondering, well, why do the Byzantines keep, they keep looking down on these other people? And he says, ah, well, this must be a remnant of Greek, Greek chauvinism. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a theory of Greek ethnicity in the Byzantine Empire. Like, okay, show us where, like, it's all pre-World War II. They're set groups. These are so-called so races. And it, we're just carrying on as before. Uh, so... And yeah. not Roman chauvinism. He just skips that option. Exactly. No, no, that's not on the table. Yeah. <laughs> Fairly standard um, until the 21st century. And the concept of identity brings to the table the subjectivity um, of it all, right? That, that identity is something, to use our terms of art, negotiated, right? Mm. Constructed and interrogated and subverted and so forth. So we love to use those terms. And they point out the subjective aspect of it, how people reimagine and reinvent their identities all the time and change them, that they're not immutable, um, inherited traits. And I think this is the key thing, because if they're not immutable and inherited, there's some sort of human process that, that, that is involved in their construction. And that's what the study of identity is. And it's important because it gives people agency in that again. And, you know, you're not trapped within some racial framework, unless you're racialized in the U.S., but that's a, <laughs> that's a different uh, matter. Okay, so let's turn to phase three. It uh, picks up exactly with what I was just saying about the potentially infinite uh, oh, yeah. reinvention and, and, and hyper-analysis of identity modes. So what happened in your field in phase three? Sure. Uh... So phase three, we're moving on from constructivist to now deconstructivist. I should note that essentialist and constructivist are terms of art broadly used by, by the fields. We're, we're kind of coining deconstructivist here somewhat as it applies to the study of, of barbarians and, and the Byzantines here, but it, but it works. 
So first off, it, it needs to be noted that both constructivists and deconstructivists recognize that ethnic groups are socially constructed. They, they ground their sense of grouphood in, in narratives, so stories people tell each other about themselves. But it seems to me that these deconstructivists see this narrative as like a mere narrative, something, something perhaps flimsy, like a pretense. Uh, ethnicity becomes a matter of, of labels or like a discourse. It's like a lever that you can pull for political advantage or a card that you can play for economic gain. It's easily acquired, easily abandoned. It's basically just like a social tool to be used in the never ending rat race of wealth, status, and power, you know, just sort of postmodern stuff. These deconstructivists, they tend to think that post-World War II scholarship just kind of swapped out the concept of race and stuck in ethnicity and maintained too many of the implicit assumptions of the old models. Uh, so for example, deconstructivists would suggest that it's a mistake to see history like a board game and the pieces on the board as, as various ethnic groups, because that would ascribe too much importance to ethnicity in shaping history. Rather, they would see that they would suggest that the game pieces should be like power, wealth, status, or access to social capital or economic capital. They tend to be extremely skeptical of the Greek and Roman sources' ability or even intention to accurately reflect the social world of, right. in my case, of barbarians. And this goes beyond the problem of like of barbarian cliches in the sources. So like if you just close your eyes and imagine a barbarian, you're doing that. Like some, some big, dumb, violent, <laughs> savage dude, right? So like, but those are obvious. Those have been in the sources since Herodotus. They were there a thousand years later in late antiquity. And I imagine they're there a thousand years after that in, in Byzantine stuff, right? So like, that's yeah. all just there. But it's easy enough to spot so you can kind of control for it and kind of cut around it. But the deconstructivists argue the problem is worse than that. They suggest that Roman authors artificially ethnicize barbarian groups who actually lacked ethnic bonds, and that they do this because the rules of literary genre demanded this kind of false ethnicization. So what we call barbarian ethnicity is really just a mirage emanating off the sources, which of course then begs the question, well, if, if like the Goths and Vandals weren't ethnic groups, what were they? They would argue they were essentially just like these socio-political groupings who were in almost every way Roman because they had been thoroughly shaped by Roman politics, economics, and culture. Uh, they can be thought of as like mercenary armies who sometimes fought for the empire, sometimes against it, depending on their needs. Depending on who's arguing what, it's, it's suggested that they, they got their identities, the group identities and their names, such as Goth or Lombard or whatever, either by themselves self-consciously borrowing from like the general bric-a-brac of earlier Roman literature. So like, oh, Goths sounds tough. I'll call, we'll call ourselves Goths now. Or it's, it's argued that it was the Romans who had just started calling the Goths Goths and they did so long enough that eventually the Goths started calling themselves Goths because it was the Romans who set the terms of geopolitical right. power dynamics. And it's, it's, it's their game and it's all just players in a general Roman game. Yeah, that's a very important point, the, the, the emphasis on the sources. So if identity is constructed, it's const we see it through sources because without the sources, we don't see any identity. 
So therefore, logically, the identities are constructed in and possibly by the sources. And so this leads some in a broad movement that we call a linguistic turn or whatever, we don't need to get into that, to conclude that these ethnicities are more literary artifacts, textual artifacts. They're the products of the Greek and Roman discourse and less so social realities. Uh, actual groups that have their own history that we can, you know, we can extract from the sources and put those, you know, nuggets of information together and create a continual history of a group. So the idea is that that close analysis of the sources tends to replace the study of ethnogenesis and ethnohistory and so forth. That's legit because our sources, yeah, it's absolutely legitimate. Our sources do do that. Uh, and so we do absolutely need to recognize the role that they play in constructing what we think we know about these groups. At the same time, there is a way around that, especially for well-documented groups. So when you have a number of different sources written in a number of different cultures, in languages and situations and different genres and different authors referring to the same group in roughly the same kind of way, as happens with the Romans of Byzantium, I think that you can put all of those together and push back against the idea that this is just a textual conspiracy um, because sure. that would, you know, you would require collusion, un, I don't know, unprecedented in history. With the Goths, it's slightly trickier because we don't have their own stories and narratives about themselves that are uncontaminated by Greco-Roman right. literary genres. Right. And, and these people are assumed by this more radical branch of scholarship to act in Roman ways and want Roman things and be in every way Roman, and that there is no such thing as a Gothic people, and that they certainly weren't ethnically constituted. And I can't help but think, and this, this might be, I, I don't know, I, this might ruffle feathers, but I can't help but think that this is still the phantoms of World War II haunting the course of, of debate in the field. The ironic danger of that kind of thinking is that you can't point your finger at a human group and say you aren't a people and be wrong about that like there there are stakes here these aren't just intellectual games we're playing as a story and so we need to be careful with this stuff i think yeah but here's the so a fascinating parallel with the type of identity that i work on that is romanism byzantium that also has been denied uh, persistently. And in similar terms, that is, scholars will say, yeah, there's all this Roman talk going around, but it's just a label. It doesn't correspond to anything that these people thought they were. It's not a meaningful key for explaining their worldview, or, you know, who they thought they were in the world in relation to other people. And let's just, let's just get that out of the way. The name Roman is sort of attached to them from afar, but it, we can rip it off and see who they were. Uh, which is never satisfactory explained after that point. So there, th- these two groups are similar in that way. And I think the, sim- the core similarity is one of those double standards that I mentioned earlier, that those two groups aren't around anymore to assert themselves, mm-hmm. right? And you see this double standard play out in, in Byzantine scholarship where Bulgarians, Armenians, Jews, Arabs, and whatnot are treated as actual ethnicities. One can have an ancestry in them. They're treated as real ethnic groups that receive separate specialized publications. But the Romans are not. 
that logic does not apply to them at all, even though in the texts they're treated as, as homologous, right? So you'll have a sentence that says, well, this general assembled an army of Romans and Armenians, or someone was a Roman on his mother's side and an Arab on his father's side. Like those kinds of statements tell you that those groups are regarded as sort of socially equivalent, right? The, the same kind of identity. And yet we treat the one set very differently, the set that exists today, right? So if you have a seat at the UN, you get treated very, very differently than if you don't. And so Goths and Eastern Romans, they don't exist anymore. They're extinct. And so we can write them off. I wanted to point out one more feature of the deconstructionist phase, and that is the tendency or possibly even bias towards hyper-analysis. And that is, so the ethnogenesis phase talks about how groups come into being and change over time and then possibly dissolve and go out of being. In the deconstructionist phase, you, you begin to think that, wait a minute, even those building blocks are too big. They're too pseudo-objective, right? They're too essentializing. And th there isn't a group. What we're dealing with in reality is different different social classes, different people in different, different gender, different economic circumstances, all of them changing their views of who they are in response to, you know, year to year, day to day changes. And so there's this kind of tendency to, whenever someone postulates a group and an ethnicity to say, well, we need to nuance that because, you know, what was happening in this decade is not the same as what was happening in that decade or this group with that group or this gender and that gender. And, and there's a game of one-upmanship that develops where the previous person who is operating at a slightly broader analytical plane is criticized for being too, you know, unnuanced. And so you're bringing it down and a little bit, but then the next person will attack you for the same thing. <laughs> and it, and eventually you get into these micro slices of people's identity being constructed on a, <laughs> in a like, oh, what's the term for that? Like wall street trading that happens in fractions of a second, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Uh, high speed yeah. trading or something like this. Sure. Yeah. And eventually you, you, you come down to like subatomic levels where identities being fashioned in discourse below a level that our sources can actually see. And there you're very, very sophisticated, but you're also talking about such small slices of very situationally contingent identities. And you end up with this idea of human beings as not only infinitely malleable, but almost as lacking identity, right? You've like gone so far deep that it's just a fluid play of responses to situations. Sure. Oddly enough, in Byzantine studies, I was beginning to see more signs of that happening. <laughs> yes, before any of the old late 20th century standard ethnogenesis stuff. <laughs> skipped a few steps there. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we're not going to talk about Romans in the big picture, and then we're just going to jump down to the subatomic level where, of course, that's not real and so forth. Okay. I want to push back uh, on some of the effects that that uh, hyperanalysis has had. In particular, it seems to, it doesn't take um, 
uh, a good account of the resilience of ethnic identities over time. They're not immutable. They're not eternal. They're not facts of nature. They're things that people make, but I don't think they're quite so fluid as they're sometimes made out to be. And fluid is a term that is used very often in this uh, body of scholarship, but you got to remember it's a metaphor. I've never seen a sort of rigorous analytical you know, concept structure to go with it so that we can know how fluid things are. Uh, you know, what, what, what is the viscosity here exactly? How, how, um, how resilient are ethnic formations? Even if you just think about it as on a personal level, yeah, there's definitely a sense in which I can project a different identity to different people in different circumstances. Like we all do that, right? But I don't think that I could remake myself on a certain level without, at least not without a great deal of effort. Like I can pass as a Greek and as an American. And, and, and if I wanted to, like nobody I was interacting with for the first time would know that I could just switch and do the other one, right? Could I, could I pass as an Armenian? Well, maybe if I never opened my mouth, <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe, but, but it would be very, very difficult to do. And there's, so there's this model that I sometimes come across where, and it's taken from like this idealized version of the Ottoman Empire, where you wake up, uh, serve, and then you go to your Jewish second cousin and you go to the market and you use some Armenian, you pretend to be an Armenian, but oh, you've got these kinship ties with a block somewhere. And so you, you use that to you know, negotiate a deal and your identity is just changing from moment to moment. And I just think people like that in history have probably been very rare. Oh, yes. It had, had to have been. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and, and even the performance of those secondary or tertiary identities, that's based on a very limited repertoire of linguistic and cultural skills that you've picked up. But if you were to be thrown into that group on a more continual level, I think they would quickly realize how you know, it fairly shallow. And of course, you, it's, it's not just a matter of what you want to do. If you decide that you want to be Armenian, like you want to be fluid today, I'm, not many Armenians would it, feel your yes. fluidness. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Blow you right out. You know? Yeah, yeah. Belonging to an ethnic group also entails being accepted by them. Yes. And there's some groups that will never accept you, no matter how much you try. Yeah. You know, it's their right, I guess, to determine the membership of their group. There are others that are far more open. Okay. We've talked about the historical contingency of ethnicity and how it's not rooted in biology. And here we're going to run into some of the intuitions of our listeners and certainly some of the ones who sent me questions. Because when all is said and done, everything that we've been talking about it are discussions among scholars. Mm-hmm. And they haven't percolated down into the awareness of people who inhabit identities. We analyze them, but they're people who live them. They, that they're, you know, they're within the house of either national identities or ethnic identities. They live in that house. And the view from both sides looks very different. There are still a number of national identities that continue to rest on the idea that their groups are kind of natural facts. That's just a premise that 
like there are Greeks and the, the Greeks have been in Greece and, you know, yeah, maybe their religion changed and their political organization changed, their language changed a little bit, but they remain Greeks. And if you see them in some historical period with a different name, they're still Greeks. They just have the wrong name. Yeah. It's a bit of a short circuit there that happens that, you know. Yes. Right. So one of our listeners actually sent in a question saying, okay, so the Byzantines are Romans, but they're really descended from the ancient Greeks. I mean, they're really just Greeks, right? The modern Greek national narrative is that there were Greeks in antiquity, there were Greeks, there are Greeks today, and the, what came in between must have been Greek, regardless of what it called itself. Mm-hmm. And so if they're calling themselves Romans, they just have a false label. And I've seen that. I've seen that in print. Uh, like that's, that's a false label. I've even seen the claim made by a very, very good historian, prominent Byzantinist, saying that they only kept that label because the emperors in Constantinople were forcing them to have it. But as soon as they didn't, they weren't, yes, they switched to calling themselves Greeks, which isn't true anyway. But okay, let's look at some of the questions that came in. Why don't you start off with the, with the first one? What do you make of that? So at what point can we say that a Roman ethnic identity began to appear among Greek-speaking populations of the Eastern Roman Empire? This begs the question of the Byzantines actually having a Roman ethnic identity. I believe they did. I've argued that they did at length. I'm not going to go over all of that right now. I think the case is pretty obvious. But that means that we are now dealing with a case of Roman ethnogenesis, right? Kind of like what you were talking about with barbarian ethnogenesis earlier. At some point, the people living in, let's just take Western Asia Minor. This is a control case. In antiquity, they were considered Greeks. And at some point later on, they're, they're considered Romans. And they don't cast their group narrative as being a Greek one, but a Roman one. Right? So when they talk about the history of their group, they trace it back to Italy and, and not to Greek colonization or Athens or something like that. So at some point, something changed. This hasn't been discussed. So the process of Romanogenesis is kind of non-existent in the scholarship on late antiquity. And it's a major project. That is, it, it would really be a substantial addition to our understanding of what the Roman Empire did to many of its provincial populations. Romanization it, has been discussed. Romanization. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is like a, a parallel universe. Exactly. I think of Romanization in those terms, but uh, because that's a term used by uh, often by archaeologists to discuss material culture and so forth, I will here use the term Romanogenesis. By the way, because we've been talking about Goths and Romans, I think that the experience of the Goths and other barbarian groups in late antiquity or early Byzantium contributed to the formation of a Roman ethnic identity. And by that, it should be pointed out that you know, beginning in the late fourth century AD, like large groups of barbarians started showing up and in, in, in living in the empire, not conquering it yet, but, but they're in the empire. And so this, you're, you're suggesting, began to, to sharpen and harden a sense of Romanness. Yeah, because in the past, the inhabitants of the empire were, let's just say Roman in the sense that they're living in the Roman empire. A number of them were Roman citizens. After the early third century, all of them are Roman citizens, except for the slaves, and they're barbarians out there. You would often talk about Romans and barbarians, but the barbarians weren't something that posed a kind of existential issue. Mm-hmm. 
But the, these barbarian groups started either entering the empire, settling in the empire, or being uh, hired into its armies. Uh, and there were many instances where they would sometimes go plundering all around Greece or Asia Minor, and there were some wars. They were used as mercenary armies in Constantinople. They produced clashes and ethnic clashes and even a pogrom in 400, where the, the population of Constantinople massacred uh, 7,000 Goths or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that those kinds of events, the clashes between Romans and barbarians, and the fact that the barbarians were being understood as an ethnic group by the Romans, whether they were or weren't, I think they were. But I think that this hardened uh, a sense, because when you're postulating an ethnic boundary, it tends to cast both groups as ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And even if the Romans before that weren't like seeing themselves as an ethnic group so much, but more of a political, legal, you know, polity, over time, I think this tended to produce a, a hardening ethnic difference. The Goths and the Romans may have ethnicized each other. Mm, this is good, yeah. I think this process was then supercharged in the seventh century with the Arab conquests. So once the state lost Egypt with its large Coptic speaking population and it lost Syria and Palestine, which had a large um, Aramaic speaking population and was left only with provinces that where the population spoke uh, Greek and was all of the same uh, religious confession that is Chalcedonian Christianity that I think promoted this process of ethnic consolidation. So, you know, a Roman was basically a Greek speaking Chalcedonian Christian subject of the, um, of the Roman polity and then the laws. And I think that gave middle Byzantium uh, a a more coherent or tight uh, ethnic identity as Romans. So what happened to all the Greeks? Where did all the Greeks go, Brian? <laughs> this is a fair question, you know, because I, a lot of people were like, okay, I, I, like they could read your stuff and hear your arguments and like, and still think, yeah, but come on. Like, I mean, really? Like they're in Greece still. Like they're speaking Greek. They got the Parthenon right there. They got Epidaurus over there. Like, and they just stopped being Greek. They just stopped. And then a thousand years later, they started being Greek again. Like, come on, like, they're still Greek, right? Frankly, that's a, that's, an, that's a fairly logical thing to think. And so throw these doubters a bone. Walk us through two things, at least. In, in what ways can we know that, that Greek ethnicity did disappear? And in what ways did Greekness survive? Because Greekness in some form or another didn't just disappear, right? I mean, in order to be resurrected, it, it had to be there somewhere. So how does it survive and in what ways does it change? So I don't think I can answer all, uh, these okay. questions right now. So this is a huge topic and it hasn't been studied. And part of the reason why it hasn't been studied is because there's a kind of disciplinary gap. There's a rupture between um, academic fields of research. Ancient historians and classicists tend to work down maybe to the third century AD. After that, classicists are not so interested. Uh, They'll go as far as philosophers. (laughs) Philosophers in the early third century talks about second sophistic and so on. But so the main tools that, that classicists have in talking about the Roman Empire is this kind of Roman power and Greek culture dynamic and how the Greek provincials in the East are trying to negotiate another buzzword with like Roman power and so forth. 
But the empire is understood to have these two components, Romans and Greeks. And then in the third century, there's, there's a bit of a, a, a disciplinary gap and a different set of scholars pick up after that. Uh, so working on, quote, late antiquity or early Byzantium. And for them, you know, Christianity's kind of there already. Constantinople is there. The, the Eastern Roman Empire is there. And their questions are not about Romanness and Hellenism. They're about Christianity and paganism. And, and they, they take universal Romanness as, as a given. like that. So the questions of Greek identity don't come up. So therefore, the question of what happens to, the, to Greek ethnic identity kind of disappeared, falls into that crack. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem. And in part, it's because these two fields have different kinds of questions. If you're interested in how holy men functioned in villages in Syria and so on, you're not going to really be asking what, what happened to Hellenic identity when really all you've got are like people like Julian and so forth who are making a very big noise and then they disappear. Okay, what we have to do as historians is follow the evidence. Like, that's absolutely what we have to do. And, the, and what you find in the evidence is like in the second century AD, you find a lot of people talking about us Greeks and you Romans in Greek, right? In the Greek texts. And they're talking about Greek ethnic history and with all the myths and all of that. You go to the fourth century and you don't find people doing that. Well, maybe two or three people like Labanius or something like that. In the fifth century, you don't find any. And there they're just talking about we Romans. It's like, that's a given. So something had happened in between. And, and I think that this process continues in the following centuries so that the narrative changes. And if you're a Greek speaker in formerly Greek ethnic lands, you're now a Greek speaking Roman in those same lands. Like it, it really does change. And that's what it means when an ethnic identity has gone extinct. Uh, let me add also that in the, in the Eastern church, the term Greek in, in Greek, Hellene, also came to mean a pagan. And as the society was becoming more Christian, that term became sort of toxic, like it delegitimated its ethnic use as well, because it just came to mean something else. Mm. So much so that, you know, when like uh, church writers are referring to Persians or the Arabs as pagans, they call them Greeks. No, really? Yeah, those are the Greeks now. The Persians are the Greeks because they're pagans. I didn't know that. That's cool. It's a complete reversal, right, of what the term means. So if Hellene means in the cultural discourse of the time, it it doesn't mean an ethnic Greek identity. It means this other thing. That means that ethnic Greek identity is no longer the operating framework of your society. Like, it's gone. In Middle Byzantium, a few centuries later, when this is like not only done, it's completely crusted over <laughs> and, you know, solidified. They talk about the Greeks as they did like the ancient Egyptians. Like it's just an ancient people who lived, uh, you know, back then. And they, they were pagans and they produced all these wonderful texts. We like to read their literature and all the great stuff. But it's like in the same way that modern classicists talk about the Greeks. Like, yeah, the Greeks were back then. We like the Greeks. <laughs> There's no sense of like family connection or like there's, there's no we, there's no second pl- or first person plural. There's no, there's nothing that, there. That begin that comes in later in Byzantine history. That's another process of like he- neo-Hellenic ethnogenesis ah, right. in yeah. late Byzantium for reasons that have to do with late Byzantium. And it doesn't catch on. It flops. 
an intellectual thing or a political thing? Completely intellectual. It's it's a yeah, few. Yeah, it's a handful cool. of intellectuals who are experimenting, yeah. and it just flops. It just yeah. nope. So they remain ethnic Romans throughout the Ottoman Empire and down into the 19th century, and in some cases into the 20th century. So it's not a thousand years later. It's much more than that. Ethnic Roman identity survives in the East until the 20th century. It doesn't matter what the, quote, biological substratum is. <laughs> That's not how we do history. Um, and it's certainly not how we study identity. So I suspect that Sumerian ethnicity, if there was one, uh, or Gothic ethnicity is not going to get resurrected. I, I don't know. I'm not going to live forever. I'm, I'm assuming it's not. But why, Greek, why not? It's just so dead that there's just, there's just no remnant of its culture being practiced. So, like, for example, Greek never stopped being spoken. Do you think right. that kind of was it a handle with which one could you know drag oneself out of the grave and become Greek again? Right. When a group invents or reinvents an identity and you see a big change happen there, like from Greek to Roman, and then later on, in the, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, from, from Roman back to Greek, there's usually some, some kind of connection or continuity there. So in this case, speaking more or less the same language, living more or less in the same region. And of course, by that point, you've cultivated some narratives of continuity. That's very important. You've got to have some narratives to go along with this. Last week, I had a fascinating two-hour conversation with a colleague in, uh, in Beirut. And uh, this was about Phoenician identity in Lebanon, which is a big thing. There are groups and the Maronites and so forth in Lebanon that, and it's in the constitution. You know, the ties there are a little bit more distant in the sense that the, the Phoenician language doesn't survive. Its religion certainly doesn't. <laughs> Child, child sacrifice, anyone? Temples of Melkart hanging around? I mean, 2020 is bad enough. Let's not have anybody bring that back. Um, it's the same place, and it's had a continuous history, and it's not the historian's job to tell people who they are or aren't. Like, this is for them to decide. I can decide for myself who I am, but I don't get to tell people in history who they are or they're not. And I don't get to tell people today if they want to create an identity. Uh, Macedonia, North Macedonia. Mm, yeah, sure. Right? Sure. Like, wait, I'm just going to go to, no, you're not. Like, if they think they are, clearly, okay, now we've got to work with that. They're going to work with them. You know, find some, you know, Greeks and North Macedonians have to find a way to, you know, get along. So, yeah, identities are malleable in that sense. Not infinitely so, but uh, anyway. Let's move on to the next batch here. Okay, so did the emperors after Constantine I feel more familiar as historical figures to the average Byzantine than from those from Augustus through the Tetrarchy? Did the Romans slash Byzantines see their history as truly continuous from ancient Rome, or is there something of a break? And so let me, let me ask you to do something. I'm going to put a little top spin on this. So uh, everybody has heard the term straw man. Well, there's a new, there's a neologism for, for rhetoric and for debates called steel manning. And that is, it's a charitable, good faith uh, rhetorical move where you uh, faithfully represent your opponent's position in the best light possible. So Anthony, is there anything to the idea that say your average medieval Byzantine understood Constantine or say Justinian as like their guys? And like, I don't know, like 
Pertinax or uh, <laughs> Alexander Severus is like, I don't, I guess they're part of our history, but I don't know. I mean, is there some kind of shift there? Oh, yes. Ab- no, absolutely. Ab- though I don't know about per- Pertinax might be the straw man version of the steel man <laughs> argument. that. You're... Fair enough. <laughs> Do I have to make the case for Pertinax? Okay, <clears throat> no. <laughs> Absolutely, there was uh, there was a there was a sense of rupture and all kinds of uh, turning points, and uh, there were periods when history accelerated, and periods when there was far more focus, emphasis, and investment in, in a certain emperor than in others. Absolutely. So let's look at it this this way. I think that Constantine was perceived as a definite turning point for a number of reasons, primarily because he was the first Christian emperor. Uh, also because he founded Constantinople, right? And a lot of our authors are Constantinopolitans. They're living in Constantine City, quite literally. And also he was a saint in the Orthodox tradition, uh, he and his mother, Helen. And so they marked a turning point within Roman history. The patron saint of uh, dysfunctional families. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, yes. Of boiling your wife. I don't uh, know. Boy, you did not want to be. Being his subject was okay, but being it related to him, not so good. Um, you know, there's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, Dagron made this. It's it's quite a brilliant, you know, the way he thought. It was incredible. And he thought that the the um, the Byzantine church made specifically Constantine into a saint to get around the problem and negate the entire possibility of emperors as emperors being regarded as saints, like all of them. So in order, like it happened in the Serbian tradition later on, like in order to neutralize the possibilities of emperors claiming sanctity in the basis of their position as leaders of the Christian world, you know, crowned by God, blah, 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 they emphasized Constantine so much that later emperors just couldn't hope to compare. Hmm. Okay. This is a wonderful way of thinking. Anyway, (laughs) so Byzantines have lots of identities, like all people, and those identities have different historical uh, aspects. Uh, so we're talking specifically about the Roman one. They also had a Christian one that had a different history. So for a time, their Christian identity and their Roman identity were at odds because the Romans were persecuting the Christians, right? So you go to church and you hear about all these martyrs who are put to death by Diocletian's evil governors or whatever. And in those texts, the Romans are the bad guys and the Christians are the good guys. And you identify with the Christians, not the Romans. So the persecutions of the early Christians, I mean, fantastical, though, they were in later memory, right? But they were very real for the Byzantines. And so this ingrained in them this sense of, you know, evil Romans and then good Romans after Constantine, right? It, it, was, it was a real um, qualitative uh, paradigm shift in Roman history. Yeah, but you, the way you constructed that just then was that there were evil Romans and good Romans, but were they even calling... Like, was Romanness a part of their evilness? Were they calling them, ooh, the Romans, or were they saying the pagans or something else? Yeah, not so much the Romans, but it's kind of understood. It's mostly the evil emperors. Emperors, Um, okay. Yeah, and so the thing is that evil emperors are a feature of Byzantine history, like, throughout. Like, you can, it could be a heretical emperor. So the line between the evil pagan emperors, who Romans who persecuted, and the good Christian ones afterwards is kind of blurred because the responsibility for the persecution was really put on evil emperors, and evil emperors continue to exist today. 
Nevertheless, I think that Constantine was a was a turning point. You can see this, for example, in the 10th century when when Constantine the Seventh writes uh, in the preface to one of his, I think, it's a biography of his uh, grandfather Basil the First, and he says, "I wanted to write the history of all the emperors of all the Roman emperors in Byzantium, like after Constantine." So you can see that he has this historical model of Roman history in Constantinople being a different, or not a different, but a new departure, like a, a renewal of the old Roman tradition. But there were also contexts in which, uh, you know, Augustus or even Aeneas could be invoked as a ancestor, whether ethnic or institutional. Basil II, for example, in around uh, 996, he issues this law guaranteeing uh, the possession of land in certain classes. Anyway, we don't need to get into the technicalities of the law. But he says, under certain circumstances, in order to claim that you own this land, you have to document that it's ownership back to the times of Augustus, <laughs> which is a really weird reference. But anyway. Um, wow. Yeah. But see, Augustus comes up in another context, which is that this is when Christ is born. Uh, yeah, sure. Right. So Christ is born d during the reign of Augustus. And this, in a certain in a certain sort of theological context, this legitimates the Roman Empire as a whole, as part of God's plan. And so that is the proto-point of convergence, when Christian and Roman begin to come together. And you would have had total convergence had the emperors right then accepted Jesus Christ. And there were all these stories about Tiberius, well, I mean, obviously Augustus couldn't have done it because Jesus hadn't started his ministry under Augustus. But Tiberius was sent, you know, information about Jesus and miracles and everything and is thinking about whether to convert. Um, so that's a proto-Constantinian moment, right? When yeah. Roman and Christian almost converge. And then you think, okay, but then there are all these evil emperors like Nero and so on. Yeah, but the Roman Empire and the Roman emperors continue to do God's work in Christian terms. So, for example, the destruction of Jerusalem by Vespasian and then his son Titus, this is fulfilling Christ's specific prophecy about the temple. Yes, yes. Right? And hence we have the works of Josephus, right? We have the works of Josephus because he narrates how the Romans destroyed the temple, the Jerusalem and the old order of Judaism. And from a Byzantine standpoint, this was, you know, Romans that they are sort of abolishing or symbolically, but in this case also to a considerable degree, actually abolishing Judaism in order to create the possibility for a Christian order later on. So Roman and Christian were kind of entwined already before Constantine, if you want to look at it that way. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so no, there's so there's definitely points of rupture, but there are also points of entanglement. It's, a, it's an interesting um, long-term view of history. A listener asks, what is the correct pronunciation and, and you know, how would the Eastern Romans have pronounced uh, the name of their state and the name of their language? Yes, so this is a great question. It requires that we explain what those names are. So the name of the state 
and the society that the Byzantines used was Romania. <clears throat> this means something like Roman land, and it's attested in the fourth century in such a casual offhand way that I'm pretty sure that the term had already begun to spread in the third century. It was a vernacular term in the sense that like, formal writers, you know, like your Procopius or whatever, they didn't pick it up, though it was absolutely common in their time, as we know from instances of reported speech in the streets of Constantinople, they were referring to Romania as what today we would call the Roman Empire or you know, whatever. And Procopius' um, contemporary, Jordanes, who's writing at the exact same time in the same city in Latin, he also says Romania. So yeah, it's used in both Greek and Latin. But over time, it begins to intrude into official discourse until it's being used in official documents uh, in the 11th century. I, I think in the 10th also, but we have very, very clear cases of the 10th century of uh, Romania being used in the same way that today we would mean, like I would say France or the United Kingdom or Italy or a state name. This language is an interesting question. The Byzantines had, as it were, two languages, both versions of Greek. Learned Byzantines, if you were educated, you learned ancient Greek and you, you certainly wrote in that, and you declaimed orations in that. Like, to some degree, they did speak it. Uh, this is, we're trying to reconstruct that now. Like, how, how exactly was this spoken? How well would it have been understood and by whom and the contexts and, and, and so forth? And that's called what? High register Greek. Oh no. Okay. Okay. So we don't. So, so we don't know. Have a, a discrete name that they called it. Okay. Oh sure. Yeah. I mean, like Attic Greek or so Koine. They, like no, no, no. They use the terms that you learn in like Greek 101, Attic okay. Greek or Koine Greek or. But that's not the language that they spoke at home or on the street, which increasingly was like modern Greek. By the 10th century, it's pretty much modern Greek. There's only one vowel that re remains the ypsilon is continued to be pronounced a little bit differently and only in the capital and I think only in the court. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you like went to the court and you wanted to sound posh, you would pronounce ypsilon in some special way, like more like, Ooh, you know, right? something like that. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the pronunciation is straight up like modern Greek. And so is a lot of the vocabulary and grammar. A modern Greek could have a conversation with a Byzantine pretty easily, I think, you know, from some point onward, probably in the 8th century. It might take a little bit of adjustment, but not that much. And that language, the spoken language, they called Romaica, like Romaic. Occasionally Greek in a very generic sense, like they knew it was the Greek language. and so. But when they wanted to refer to that version of it, they would uh, often call it Romaica, sometimes Romaica, sometimes Romaica. Arabic uh, texts also call it that, uh, the language of Rum, and distinguish it from ancient Greek, which they called Yunani, uh, which is, you know, they went a separate language. Concluding note that those names are further indication of a Absolutely. Roman ethnic identity. Absolutely. Right? I, I, was gonna, I was going to say that. It's, so it's, it's certainly further indication of Roman identity, but... Do they ever call their language Greek? Like yeah, 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 Greek, sometimes. Greek sometimes. Word for Greek. Also because it was a prestige language. It's not that they had the ancient Greek classical corpus. We have it because they kept it. And they kept it because they liked, they valorized it. It was very important for their, certainly elite culture. 
And so being the sole custodians of classical Greek literature and classical Greek culture was very important for learned Byzantines, especially since the, you know, the Arabs were claiming it also as their own. And uh, occasionally, you know, some Western medieval scholars would get would get uppity and claim to know some Greek, and they're like, "No, nah, no, nah, you sit down, <laughs> <Not very well. laughs> sit down. You don't know it." <laughs> anyway, so when you stop calling yourself a Greek and you're calling yourself a Roman, and when you name your state and society and national territory Romania, as in expressions like, "That year the Arabs invaded Romania," or that general, he did great services for Romania. Or in a treaty, when, you, when you're telling some Norman terrorist, and you will keep peace with Romania from now on, exactly how we use modern nation state names today. And you relabel your spoken language. Yeah. It's, it's Romaic. Okay, this you do when you're pretty much convinced that you're an ethnic Roman. What's next? So the next listener question uh, is about the, the general transition from a Roman to a Hellenic self-identification among the Greek-speaking populations of Greece between the 16th and 19th centuries. What was going on there? Right. So this is another case of ethnogenesis. But it, this is a very long process. The Greek-speaking Orthodox population of the Ottoman Empire calls itself Roman, Romeos, Romios. And is called Roman by the Ottoman administration, Rum. Its language is called Roman and so forth. Side note, a lot of the um, audience might think, wait, no, there was this thing called a millet, like the Ottoman Empire organized its subject populations into religious groups. And the entire millet of Rum was everyone who was Orthodox, regardless of whether Bulgarian, Serb, whatever. The whole millet structure of the Ottoman Empire has been significantly revised in recent scholarship. And we know now that it's a much, much later construct, late 18th century. And it never replaced the individual ethnic designations. And so tons and tons and tons of evidence that in the Ottoman Empire, Serbs, Bulgarians, Rum, um, Albanians, Vlachs, and so forth, were all regarded as um, different ethnic groups different languages, and so on. At some point, some of those Rum, Romy, cultivated and eventually adopted a Greek identity. The strongest precedent for this was Romans, Romy, who went to live in Western Europe, or Italy, because there, they're called Greeks, right? So if you're a Roman under the Ottoman Empire and you go to Italy, you become a Greek, Graecus. Mm -hmm. Because there's no category in the West for being a Greek-speaking Orthodox Roman. Remember, that's verboten. You can't be that. This doesn't have to be very sinister ideologically. Like, uh, I mean, just a very banal example. If you're, if you're a modern German and you go to the United States, you're, you're a German, which is, you're not a German back home. You're Deutsch or something else, right? German is just what we... So you'd think, okay, well, those are just how you translate terms. There's not much ideological baggage associated. And to a certain degree, becoming a Greek when you went to the West was kind of like that. It was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Greek, right? Even today, I mean, Greeks don't call themselves Greeks. They're Hellenists. Most of them understand that this is just a translation. There's not, not much is implied by it. It's no big deal. Though I have met some who think it is a big deal and that we should force, yes, we should force everybody else to call us Hellenes. 
again, you know, they're constructing their identity in the way that they think, okay, fine. So what happened was that in the West, all of these people were considered Greeks, but in the Ottoman Empire, they're, they're Roman. Their narratives are Roman, their language is Roman, Romaic, right, and so forth. Well, probably the biggest change takes place in the late 18th, early 19th century, and certainly before and with the Greek Revolution. I'm not going to get into all of the details about this, but the Greek Revolution made it imperative to project a Hellenic identity to the West, uh, because otherwise the Greek Revolution would never be supported or legitimate in Western eyes, and West, you know, Western support was crucial in, in winning the war. The whole premise behind Western support was that, oh, we are helping the Greeks because they're the descendants of the ancient Greeks, the descendants of Pericles who are fighting to overthrow the Turkish yoke, the barbaric Turkish yoke, you know, all of that kind of rhetoric. Oh, sure. And so it was just a, a precondition of the modern Greek state that it adopt an, an ethnic Greek identity, which it did, uh, happily, actually. <laughs> it's, it's actually a very seductive identity like who wouldn't want to be <laughs> sorry brian but <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. anyway they didn't like immediately retire roman identity it morphed it it began to occupy specific parts of the culture but in the rest of the ottoman empire the roman identity continued in fact was somewhat strengthened because you didn't want to give the impression to the ottoman authorities by calling yourself a Greek, that you're siding with the revolutionary state, mm, yeah. which had expansionist goals, right? To liberate all the Greeks. So you're living under the Sultan. You, you don't want to give that you're some sort of fifth column or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so in the Ottoman Empire, the Romans survived for quite a bit longer. And in some respects, you might even say there's still groups that um, you know, merit and use the title today. Um, though, you know, I mean, this is the tail end of Eastern Roman ethnic identity. Make a long story short, the revival of a modern Greek identity is just another part of this big, big history of ethnic identities coming in and out of existence throughout all of this period that we're talking about. A Byzantine today would look at a Greek and say, you know, you're really a Roman. <laughs> I don't know why you're calling yourself <laughs> <Sure>. a Greek. <laughs> and kind of think along the, the same implicit terms as as people do today about ethnicity. Like, not really. You're really a... It, it's yeah. because of ancestry. It's because of... Yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in Byzantine sources, you will find the claim that so-and-so uh, was a, a Roman on his mother's side and an Arab on his father's side. Like that, that's an ethnic identity. You, you don't say that about a civic citizen identity or just belonging to a state or something like that. Uh, the same thing is said in Arabic sources. In Arabic sources, you find someone who's like uh, Abu Firas, the cousin of Saif al-Dawla, um, the Hamdanid uh, ruler of Aleppo, 10th century. His cousin was a poet. We have his poems, great poems. He was a Roman on his mother's side. He was captured. He was taken to Constantinople and and he would talk about his, his, his relatives who, I don't want to meet him and all this. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. It wasn't feeling very fluid. Yeah. I mean, he had a, you know, he had a total Arab identity. That wasn't, a, that wasn't an issue for him. But that is how ethnic identities work when people talk about them. There were 
Romans in the 19th century who didn't want to become Greek. They resisted. Uh, in Greece, in, in, oh, yeah. in, in the territory of Greece. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They absolutely thought this is a terrible idea because we're Romans. We, like, we already have a name. We don't need this other name. I found a letter from, I think this is right before the revolution. It's like 1819 or something like that. And, you know, people are talking about in our Hellenic language. And he said, what Hellenic language? The Roman language. We know this. Wow. And wow. yeah, why are we looking for new names? And of course, they sometimes saw this as a, as a neo-pagan conspiracy because Hellenic also had those kinds of connotations. There are dictionaries, like trilingual dictionaries that were in Latin and ancient Greek and Romaic. And they've got like three columns. And these were produced in, you know, I've found some from the 16th century, some great ones from the 17th, and they continue into the 19th century. So they're correlating Latin, ancient Greek, and contemporary Greek, which is called Romaic. Mm. And the most fascinating entry in one of them, which I think was dedicated to Cardinal Richelieu in France. So under Latin, it will say Graecus. And in Greek, that's translated as Elin. And in Romaic, it's translated as Romeos. Okay. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. These are newspapers from like Moscow and London in the 19th century. And they'll talk about how Greeks these days study two languages, the ancient Greek language and the one they call Romaic. We've forgotten all of that. It's gone. Anyway. Uh, the final question, um, this is something actually that you might want to take on. So... Romanness survives in the Eastern Roman Empire. What happens in the Western Roman Empire? Roman identity does hold on in various parts of the Western Empire. So we should lay out that the Western half of the Roman Empire was over the course of the fifth century dismembered by various invading uh, foreign so-called barbarian peoples. And the Romans weren't all killed, we should say. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Again, they weren't all killed and they weren't just filled up with Germanic speaking people and filled up with Franks. Uh, we should say that maybe the Franks were maybe like 10% of the population or less in Gaul. Uh, maybe the same in, in Ostrogothic Italy, something around five to 10% or the, these ruling minorities. And so there was not an immediate change among the local populaces to take on these, the social identities of their new overlords, but the elites, and this is, we have information for the elites more than anybody else. The elites begin to see the writing on the wall pretty quickly. And they begin to see that the way your bread gets buttered by your new overlord is not by, you know, memorizing Virgil or uh, putting on games in, in your local town. or By putting a butter in your hair. <laughs> it smells good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see why this is barbaric. Anyway. Uh, is that what you've done? Is that what that thing it is? is? It's how I keep it in place. It's true. <laughs> you found my secret out now. Now everybody's going to be doing it. No, you don't. You, you, you fight for your king, right? So the elites of these barbarian peoples were militarized. And quite quickly, the Roman elite becomes militarized as well. So, for example, Sidonius Apollinaris, he's his fifth century Gallic, Gallo-Roman aristocrat who lived in Roman Gaul for part of his life. And then in his later life, that part of Gaul had been conquered by the Visigoths. His son fought for the Visigoths. And his grandson fought for the Franks. Look, once, you're, once you're, you're, your Roman elites are fighting for barbarian lords, 
it's not as if they immediately become Franks or Goths, but within a few generations, they're going to become Franks. We see the similar stuff happening in Ostrogothic Italy. So the, the aristocrat Cyprian had some kind of role in, in the Ostrogothic military. His sons knew Gothic and were part of the military. So this sort of thing starts to happen. But I don't know my, my Merovingian sources as well as I might, but from what secondary literature I've read, it seems to be the case that by about 650 or so, no one's really calling themselves Roman in the West anymore, but with one exception, Aquitaine or Aquitania, uh, which was technically part of the Frankish kingdom, but it's, it's in southwestern Gaul and sparsely populated by the Franks, apparently, and a kind of Romano-Aquitanian identity survived there until like 750 or so. Like we, we, we have sources that talk about Romans living in Aquitanian cities as opposed to Franks, but it seems that seems to go away around uh, the time of the Carolingians. And so after yeah. 750, even Aquitaine is no longer Roman. Yeah, one other exception, of course, being the city of Rome. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Italy, it's an interesting process where, you know, closer to the later Roman period, you find Romans being mentioned in saints' lives all over the peninsula. But over time, I read an article about this a few years ago. Over time, you see that regional identity start to prevail and that Roman is being restricted to the city of Rome, like people from there, and it, which remained a huge city by by Italians, medieval Italian standards. Mm. Um, but for the sort of decline and fall of Roman identity in the West, I would also recommend um, Erica Buchberger's book um, on, uh, I don't remember the exact title now, but something about Roman ethnicity and something in post-Roman world. Um, she's very good. I, ho- I hope to have her on the podcast too. Going down the list here? Yeah. So how about uh, modern Romania? The modern nation state of Romania, uh, do you think it's possibly derived from some kind of Byzantine provenance? Is there some sort of relation there? So no, it's not derived directly from Byzantium, but from a parallel branch of the same tradition. Sometimes I teach a course on Constantinople, like a medieval cities course, and I show students the monuments of Washington, D.C. You got your obelisk and you got your, your domed capital and you've got your arches and you know your roman style temple and and all that and the equivalents in constantinople and the equivalents in rome and do you know what the genealogy is there like of cities it's, it's kind of complex so when washington was designed it was designed to look like rome to, to even look like it oh yes oh entirely i mean what do you mean like the, the layout of the buildings uh, even that, yes. I mean, have you noticed that the Washington Monument is in a hippodrome? I mean, the mall is basically like a hippodrome. It's got the dimensions of a hippodrome. Oh, no, I have not thought about that. No. Yeah, and you put the obelisk in the middle. and In the spine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's straight up. <laughs> the Supreme Court building has Roman legionaries on the, on the facade. It's, they're not trying to hide it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and, yeah, it's supposed to, like, impress... Well, whoever's impressed by that sort of thing. But here's the thing. It wasn't modeled so much directly on Rome as on Paris, which was modeled on Rome. Uh You know, like Napoleonic Paris, 
All right. Because, I mean, Rome was a real backwater in the late 18th, early 19th century. Mm -hmm. I don't even know that you would go to Rome and be safe. So in a sense, and Constantinople is absolutely modeled on Rome. So to that degree, I think that Constantinople would be Washington's aunt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Right? Wow. Yes, this is certainly a podcast on genealogies now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure London fits in here somewhere. But anyway, um, so yeah, so Constantinople is is the the ant city of Washington D.C. They're they're related in that way. Uh, so the question is about Romania. This is probably just some sort of 19th century nationalist stuff, right? Uh, like... We, I, I think it's older than that. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh, yeah. So now here we're getting into like really contested territory, which is the origin of the modern Romanians. Actually, it's not the modern Romanians aren't, aren't the issue. It's the medieval Wallachians or Vlachs. Yeah, yeah. Um, like where do they come from? And, and the earliest uh, attestations of the Vlachs are in like 10th, 10th century, well, 11th century sources talking about the 10th century and then 11th century sources. And so there is a Romanian national story about, uh, do you know this one? Uh, I know about Dracula. That's about it. <laughs> That's okay. all I got. <laughs> well, anyway, it's, it's, it's worth um, mentioning. The idea is that part of the territory of modern Romania was conquered by Trajan and settled by the Romans who kept it mm-hmm. for a century and a half or so. Big bridge. And there's a big bridge, yeah. And the idea is that, so Latin speaking, Romance language speaking, later Wallachians, Romanians, were, are the descendants of Roman colonists and legionaries who got left behind or something. Mm, conveniently, yeah. I mean, it's not logically impossible, though it's not, it's not, necessary and it's certainly not documented in in the kind of way you would want i mean they clearly speak a romance language right so they're clearly descended from latin speakers in antiquity like that's a logic that's a linguistic fact it's the closest to latin isn't it of all of them it is um yeah Yeah. i i think it's been somewhat purified a little bit um but modern greek has been purified too and so forth but um, it's been cleaned up a little bit to be more like Latin. Um, that much is clear. The question is which Latin speakers, and also to a degree, languages can travel independently of population groups. Um, so, right. In other words, there's not a clear match between people moving and languages moving. But I, I'm not an expert on all of this, by the way. Um, the earliest reference I have found to the Romanian language being called Roman, like Romaniste or something like that, is I think 16th or 17th century. So the idea that what they're speaking is a Roman language, which where we get the term Romance also, that's pretty old. But I don't think it goes back to Byzantium being called Romania. It's, it's probably a parallel track. You know, one possibility is that the Latin speakers from whom the language evolved were, were Justinian's people. In other words, Western Balkans. Hmm. Right? Right? So you know that in antiquity, there's this line that goes from like the Adriatic uh, diagonally across 
like Bulgaria to the Danube. Yeah, and, of course. Right. So on the southeastern side in the later Roman period, the, the dominant language is Greek. And on the northwestern side, it's Latin. Right. In, in, in fact, on one of the military roads that cut, you know, cut the other way diagonally across that line, the sta- there's, a, there's a station, a mancio, right, in the, in the, in the Roman uh, post system, and it's called Latina. Oh, wow. That's yeah, yeah, and I think, okay, okay that's the point. <laughs> that's, that's cool. That's the coolest thing I've heard in a while. Okay, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. But and, it is uh, weird. I mean, it's worth pointing out that, that Dacia, which is where Romania is today, was only part of Roman territory since the time of Trajan, the early first century, until what Aurelian gave it up in the, in the late third century, right? Early 70s, yeah, yeah, yeah. 270s, yeah. And so it wasn't that long, you know? It wasn't part of the empire that long. No, no. Um, okay. So I think that's a parallel, parallel track. Um, and it's interesting that when these groups reconnected, I mean, the Greek speaking Romans of Byzantium and the Latin speaking Vlachs, they didn't recognize each other as Romans for the Byzantines. The Vlachs were like barbarian types. Of course. So this is going to be a super long episode, but the audience has itself to blame. (laughs) Apologies. (laughs) So we're good. But they were Greek, though, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's aliens out there, but it's totally alien. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, man. Thank you, Brian. Of course.